Welcome to Life, Death, Law. I'm Liza Hanks. It's hard to say that the world is perfect. When you turn on the news, it's not perfect at all. There's so much suffering. And yet, at the same time, we all understand these moments where everything is just okay. That's Elizabeth Mattis Namgal, the author of two of my favorite books, Power of an Open Question and The Logic of Faith. Elizabeth describes herself this way, Buddhist author, teacher, perpetual student, and contemporary voice for Buddha's wisdom, and I couldn't say it any better. Elizabeth has studied and practiced the Buddha Dharma for 35 years under the guidance of her teacher and husband, Dizgar Kontrol Rinpoche. She's the retreat master at Sam Ten Ling in Crestone, Colorado, and she teaches throughout the U.S., Australia, and Europe. I asked Elizabeth to be on Life, Death, Law because she writes and teaches beautifully on our universal desire to find ease and grace in a world that we can't secure or control. Well, Elizabeth, welcome to Life, Death, Law. I can't wait to share your work with our listeners. Uh, My pleasure. The reason I asked you to be on the show is that death and the experience of planning for it, and especially the experience of helping somebody you love through it, is one of those moments, you know, in your life where a lot of your assumptions fall away. And it's sort of an open moment where you realize that, oh my gosh, you know, I can't control anything and all lives begin and end. And it leaves people, I think in this country, often feeling really powerless and isolated and without good tools to manage that process with some grace. And I think you write about that beautifully in your books. So you want to start there? Yeah, sure. You've written that one of your personal cones is how do we live a life we can't hold on to? And I think the moment of being with somebody that you love when they die is one of those moments where you realize we live a life that we can't hold on to. I wondered if you would could offer my listeners um, some help there. So how do you live a life you can't hold on to? Um, maybe um, I was thinking, you know, I wrote this uh, book, Power of an Open Question, and I think that's where that quote came from, right? When I was writing that book, maybe I'll put it in a context. It's a personal context, actually. I was facing something very challenging a family uh, issue. And um, I was in that particular situation where I felt like I couldn't hold, I didn't have much control and things were going to change and I didn't know what was going to happen. And it was just around that time that my teacher, Zigor Kongtrumpeche, who's also my husband, suggested that I write a book. And I thought, well, what do I write a book about? And he said, I don't know, you decide. <laughs> so I, uh, I was really grappling with some things. And um, there's a lot of, so much uncertainty. So, you know, whether it's a death of a, a relationship or a death of a, a person or you're dying or whatever it is, you know, this kind of um, challenge really um, pushes at you in such an interesting way. So I thought I had a year, I was kind of in retreat at that time. And I thought, I'll just start asking myself my own personal questions and really look deeply into how I'm working with uncertainty and what could be helpful for me. So um, I wrote this book called Power of an Open Question, and I wrote it mostly walking in the mountains where I live. So I was moving and I was just, I was in nature and I was just asking deeply personal questions. But I always know that when I ask personal questions, you know, we're all, we're all similar. You know, we're all grappling with the human condition. So I thought, you know, if I genuinely ask these questions, I can share them with others. 
you know, so I, I trust that process of uh, being authentic with my own experience. And so many questions came up, even about spirituality and belief and doubt and uh, uh, uncertainty and trust and many things. Because, you know, we live in a world where we actually don't have that much control. It's not just our world. It's just the nature of reality that we things arise. And we don't, you know, we should have some humility in the face of this, uh, even though we do try to control it. But um, I, I really look deeply into this experience of kind of this raw, open, sometimes scary experience when kind of your familiar, familiar world starts to fall apart. And I notice a lot of really interesting things about my own mind and my ability to work with it. And one thing I notice is that when I was able to kind of accept it or relax with it and kind of be able to bear witness to the fact that I didn't know, something very spectacular started happening to my mind, which is that I, I started to access a feeling of, it's almost like humility, acceptance. You know, sometimes we, we're so busy trying to cherish and protect ourselves, but we can't really, the world doesn't really lend itself to being fixed according to our preferences. And when I kind of stepped back and I just like openly looked with a lot of curiosity without trying to fix or judging what was good or bad, I started to see that there was this kind of raw, open, very intelligent uh, way of being with whatever what was was happening. I think that kind of openness around death and dying and old age and sickness and death can allow us to be there for people in a way that we can't when we're trying desperately to fix things. And so I think in the context of this particular moment that people face, what you write about is very helpful, right? Some ability to sit still and just be with this, be with the immensity, actually, of what happens. And I, I'm not very articulate about it. That's why I had you on the show. <laughs> <laughs> well, I think, you know, it's interesting because what happens is not any one particular thing. It's, it's a dynamic that's really, really lively. And it has, you know, like grief or loss or working with others in this way has is not what it's so many things that there's a lot of humor that arises. There's a lot of confusion or darkness. There's a lot of love that comes, you know, there's, it's not, it's such a, um, first of all, it's, it's a relationship, you know? So sometimes I have, I think that we look at it in such a solid, like it's a singular event and a singular person and that our perceptions are singular, but in fact, it's just this dance, you know, <laughs> and uh, we need to pay attention and see what's needed in every moment. And that makes it a, a very creative process. I think, you know, you know, I, I mean, I, I think there's a reason that the Buddha asked us to reflect on impermanence and all that in the beginning of the path. And personally, I feel, you know, people are doing all these fancy pa practices in the Vajrayana or whatever, but without a deep, deep kind of acceptance of that, I don't, it, I don't think there's much fruit 
<laughs> because uh, I, I really feel those. Are, that's like the hardest shift to make, and it's the most powerful shift to make. Uh, if you don't do that, then you're out there wanting to fix the world. Even in I look at activism, you know, people are wanting to make the world look a particular way. I'm not saying don't respond, but there's this kind of sense of righteousness or how things are, or good and bad, very solid, because there's not this kind of bigger understanding that the world doesn't really lend itself to being fixed. And I do think that the moment when we confront our, our own mortality, or certainly the mortality of a parent, that is one of those moments where you just have to accept the way things are, that you can't stop somebody from dying, and you can only be there with them and help them and respond to that in a human way. And it's not always great. So you write in your new book, um, The Logic of Faith, that your definition of grace is finding yourself in a sane relationship with your world. And I wonder if you could talk about that a little bit in the context of this podcast, which is planning for your own death and also helping people you love die in a way that honors their life. Uh, this notion of grace to me, it, you know, in everything that I've written, I've been always kind of focused on this aspect of mind that feels, it's a very natural human experience of feeling okay with everything, despite what's going on. I'm, I've always been very haunted by that. And I've been aware of that experience since I've been very young. And I think in these books, I'm trying to get people to join me in the recognition of this very human experience where you are, you're working in accord with reality as it is. So often we're looking at reality and we want it to be a different way and we're trying to fix people, we're trying to fix the world, we're wishing things were other than they were. Uh, we, we wish, you know, our parents aging were different or that we could be different. You know, these are ways that we relate uh, to things. Uh, but sometimes there's this lack of acceptance as to how things actually are. And, and to then, you know, when we wish things to be different, we can't relate to them as they are. And so that's not graceful <laughs> to me. It doesn't feel graceful. It feels extremely painful. And there's a lot of uh, self-focus there rather than looking at the situation and thinking, how can I serve here? We have an agenda, a strategy of some sort. So that's, that's uh, maybe the opposite of grace. Whereas for me, you know, when we talk about grace, we're always talking about relationship because grace is not something that happens in a vacuum. Grace happens in relationship. To, to the world around us. So, you know, often we think grace is something, is a Christian word um, that means that you're, something is bestowed upon you. Now I know there are many different ways that Christians probably interpret that term grace, but often we think it's bestowed upon us. But if you think of the word grace, it's just a very ordinary word that we use. For example, if we go to someone's house, we say they're gracious, you know, when they, they're attentive to our needs and they offer us, you know, some tea and a nice place to sit, or it's the opposite of self-absorption, you know, or when um, we see someone who's grace, moving gracefully, you know, they have a sense of their body and how it works and they have a kind of a understanding of who they are in relationship to space. So grace always has something to do with relationship. And so, you know, I, I feel this, you know, I call the pursuit of grace faith. I, having this, this experience of grace is something I, I have faith in. And I think, I, I don't think I'm the only one who has this experience. Like I said, I think it's a very human experience. And I trust this. 
I trust this deeply. And I'm, I'm, you know, in this book and in the other book I wrote, The Power of an Open Question, I'm kind of trying to uh, share my experience of that and have people have recognized that in their own mind. What is it? Because in the end, I think for myself, when I die, that's what I have faith in is this, this experience. But this experience is some, not just about me. It's about who I am in relationship to the world that I encounter. Yeah, I think that's true. And I think, um, I think that people would like to find grace uh, in saying goodbye to the people they care about very much. Absolutely. And, and I think it's hard in a hospital setting. It's hard uh, when it's a crisis. It's hard when you haven't had conversations before the end about what you want and what you don't want. All of those things make it harder to relax and be graceful at the end. Absolutely, absolutely. And you know, the, the, the person who is dying, you want them to have the most graceful exit, you know, just to let go and just be able to, and it's such a huge opportunity, that period of time, you know, often. But sometimes that doesn't happen either. And you know, you have to accept, like you can't feel responsible for that. But you, at the same time, you can do whatever you feel is healthy in making them comfortable and holding their hand and listening to them. And we can't be responsible for someone else's mind and the life that they've led, you know? Maybe you could talk a little bit more about faith, as you gleefully call it the F word, which I loved. <laughs> because I think in this culture, a lot of people push away from any idea of believing in anything, or, or they feel that in some way that's a lazy uh, kind of word. And I, and I don't think it's lazy the way you use it um, at all. And maybe you could just talk a little bit more about it in this context, right? In the context of saying goodbye or preparing for your own death or helping somebody prepare for their own death. Well, for me, what I rely on in life is the same as what I want to rely on in death. You know, what I'm trying to cultivate in myself and understanding that, you know, when I, when I was talking before about grace, I feel like that's a resting place, but it's an unconditional resting place. Mm. You know, often we have faith in like uh, people or uh, we have faith in, um, I don't know, a religious institution, you know, and of course, you know, we, we trust that it's going to be the way we think it should be or the way that it was. And of course, when people are involved, you know, people are a moving, dynamic, conditional experience. So it's interesting that we often place our faith in things that don't lend themselves to the outcome that we hope for oftentimes because it's very human. It's a very human situation. Uh, I think oftentimes we're very disappointed in life because we place our faith in things that are not, that are dynamic and moving, you know, in that way, I think faith has been, is difficult for all of us. You know, we've been burnt again and again for having, for having faith in things that we projected to be a particular way or expected to be a particular way. So faith is a really a kind of a challenging topic for people. So I, I, I've always been interested in faith because I've had my own disappointments, but I also have had these experiences of everything being okay, like I was talking about before, these experiences of grace. And I noticed that I've always had faith in that experience, but that's an unconditional experience. It's not based on what somebody else does. It's just something, it's a moment where I find myself in good relationship where I'm not grasping or hoping or projecting or it's not all about me. So I'm able to be touched by life in a very sane, healthy way. So I, you know, I, I, when I was writing that book, I was really examining faith and I 
I also uh, find it very humorous because we say faith and we all think it means one thing, whatever that, whatever is in our mind. But faith means so many things to different people. And when you look it up in the dictionary, you find like dogma and religion and doctrine and uh, fundamentalism. And you find, you know, love and uh, uh, grace and so many uh, confidence, conviction, belief, you know. So it's so varied. These are really opposing meanings. And um, so I, I, it's very interesting. I, I don't know if anybody can say what the definitive meaning of faith is, but you can, uh, you can start to look at your own mind and see what's faith as an experience. Like for me, I, I think I feel clear where, where I have faith and I can also look at the world and I think this is savvy. You look at the world and you can't have faith in another person completely because they're motivated by their own you know, whatever, circumstances in their own upbringing and their own uh, whatever it is that arises for them. So, so that's naive on a certain level. And so, you know, this, this process of the dying process too has everything, life and the dying process all has to do with, you know, where we can turn, that where's a reliable place to rest in ourself. Maybe you could talk a little bit about your experience in, I don't know if you have any experiences of using these teachings in the context of a person in your community or a person in your life where it helped you be with them in a more present conscious way so that people could learn like, oh, I could try that. I could do that. Well, I can tell you about an experience I had with a a member of my uh, community that was very, um, it was very uh, helpful, I think. Um, I think it's going to be different for every single person. Uh, but but this this man was a practitioner, so it, he was interesting. Let me I'll tell you this story. Maybe maybe it will be helpful. So so uh, I had a friend, uh, a, a old friend named Roy. Uh, he's a Japanese businessman, but he was a very dedicated uh, pract- uh, medita- meditator um, in our tradition, and just a deep dear friend of mine. We used to argue a lot. He's more like a brother than anything to me, and. Uh, but we, I loved him very much, and uh, he had a family and, and two young daughters. And uh, at the age of like forty-two, he got uh, uh, he had got lung cancer. So he was at the end of his life, and he was such a character because he was a, a really a micromanager. <laughs> he was he, even up till the, the last week before he died, he was like he had his his clipboard with him and checking things off every day. And, you know, he, he sat me down too, and he made sure that like certain teachings were going to be preserved. And he told me how some books he thought I should write. And he was, he was the president of our community of our organization. So he was just always thinking about others and about the well being and preservation of the work that we had been doing together. So at the, at the very end, you know, we, he had, I was with him every day, every afternoon for a month before he passed. And we had a little ritual that we did that I thought was very interesting. We had a ritual that we'd pretend like we were just dying right there on the spot. That's very interesting in and of itself. What does that mean to practice dying? So he was laying in bed by that time. And, and I was, you know, I'd sit in the chair and basically we, we did our meditation practice because what it means to meditate means just to kind of let go. Now, what does let go mean? That's a you know, something that we could talk about, but it means that like you have these ideas that you're just clenching to, you know, holding on to about who you are and not wanting to become extinct or 
I don't know, whatever it is that is preoccupying us and we can't just be, we can't just be there in grace. You know, we can't just be appreciative for being alive in that moment. You know, we can't just appreciate where we are. I mean, that's where I hope we are the moment we die. I want to be there when I die. And I don't really think it's going to be that different from being able to do it now. So like in in, uh, in Tibetan, the term gom, G-O-M, I guess gom, it means to habituate the mind or familiarize the mind to not being clenching on to concepts and ideas and even this idea of cherishing and protecting the self, which is so painful. It's, it's like, you know, we don't want to live in a state of contraction. We want to be touched by the beauty and pain of life. And, and when you're meditating, so-called meditating, it sounds like this thing that you do, but actually it's really something, it's not doing what you habitually do. You allow yourself to see that even this idea of me or any thoughts that may arise like clinging to life or fear of death, are it's not a thing that you can even find. It's like Every your idea of death is not one thing, it's changing moment by moment, and it's comprised of different physical sensations, it's energetic, it's conceptually things are changing, physically, you're having different experiences. Like, death is not some solid thing, like you're one thing, and all of a sudden you become another thing which is extinct. You're never one thing to begin with. So, if you could look at your experience in a more nuanced way, you start to understand that. This idea of like this, whatever it is you're trying to preserve, was not, is not this one thing anyway. That who we are is this part of the dynamic play of interconnected relationships, you know. And, and, and that's your inner experience and your outer experience, you know. And, and, and you start to see things in a much more nuanced way. So when, when we're doing this dying practice, to me, what it felt like was you're just being present there for your life. You're just not clinging. You're just, you know, letting go doesn't mean wave it all goodbye. You can't get rid of the phenomenal world anyways. So why should you think that that, that's not what letting go means. It just means stop trying to reject the things you are uncomfortable with and grab onto the things you want and just be. So, so, uh, I, we did, so we did this dying practice. To me, it just meant meditate. <laughs> That's what I understand meditate. So we did this every day for a month in the afternoon. Then about a week before he passed, he said to me, and he was kind of formal. He's very Japanese. So he's, even though we used to argue, <laughs> right, we were very close. That's why we could argue. He was very formal with me. So then he said, today, let's really die. And what I think he meant by this is, this is it. Let's really go for it. And what he had me do, we have these, in our tradition, we have these little things that you place on the body when someone dies, you tape it on because we do cremation at death. So you tape the, you tape the, the kind of, a, it's like a little book. It's called Liberate by, Feet, by Touch. He didn't want to make it like, he didn't want it just to feel like a practice. He wanted to make it feel like this is, let's do it. So I, ta- I, he actually took off his shirt, which was, you know, vul- vulnerable. He put himself, he became vulnerable. Like I hadn't ever seen him. And like I had to touch his, you know, chest and everything. I taped the thing onto his body. 
Mm-hmm. And I, we did things that we would, I did things that we would do as if he were dead. So I, so we did this and then we did the meditation practice. And I tell you, I, I felt we died. <laughs> we died in the sense of what does that mean? It doesn't mean like you were something and you became nothing. I don't even know what nothing is because I've never experienced it before. Like we have an idea of nothing is like no one's around or black or, but that's not nothing. That's something. So I don't know what nothing is, but what I can say is I let go and I felt him let go and you could feel it in the room. If you feel this, you have this feeling in a room often after people have died. It's not nothing. I've been around a lot of people as they've died and also after they died, and it is not nothing. It is deeply profound. So, so I felt that in the room. And then uh, one week later, he actually, you know, he started, he was really on it. I'm so grateful to him for teaching, you know, me also this practice of dying. And then day by day, you know, then he, he kind of went inward with Drew and then stopped talking. And then uh, we were all there uh, when he passed. And I saw through the whole funeral and the cremation. And I oversaw all of that to really, it was a very, very big honor for me. Do you think that that experience that you had together uh, gave him some peace in the last week of his life? Yeah, I do think so. I do. It was very intimate. And I, but I also felt that he, because of the way he lived his life, because of the practice that he did, because of the deep reflection that he engaged in, he was ready. He had faith in that, what I was talking about, that bigger experience of mind, which is nothing fancy. It's a basic human experience if you just get out of the way. And you stop grasping and rejecting so much. It's like a natural, it's a feeling of being very human and very natural, you know? And, and I always, I always ask, like when I'm teaching, I ask people, do you know what I mean when I say an experience of grace? And I kind of talk about grace a little bit, this, this feeling of like everything is okay, despite, because, you know, it's hard to say that the world is perfect. When you turn on the news, it's not perfect at all. There's so much suffering. And yet, at the same time, we all understand these moments where everything is just okay. And it's not okay despite other, like you have to push away other things to feel okay. Or today I woke up and I didn't get any, I don't know, emails that are asking me to do anything, so I feel okay. It's an unconditional okay where you feel big enough for the life that you're a part of. And so... Yeah, so I ask people, you know, when I teach often, I say, is there anyone here who hasn't had? Or I say, how many people understand what I mean by grace? Everybody always raises their hand. This is a very human. But do we trust that and do we recognize that? You know, that's a question. That is the question. Thank you so much for being on Life, Death, Law, and I look forward to reading your next book. You've just listened to my conversation with Elizabeth Mattis Namgal. Buddhist teacher and author. To find out more about Elizabeth and her work, please go to her website at elizabethmattisnamgal.com or visit Life Death Law's website where I'll post links to her books and to her website on the show notes for this episode. Thanks for listening to this episode of Life Death Law. To find out more about today's episode or to send me a question or a suggested topic for future podcasts, go to lifedeathlaw.com 
send me an email at lifedeathlawpodcast at gmail.com or call me on the Life Death Law phone line at 669-232-0872. That's 669-232-0872. To subscribe to Life Death Law, go to iTunes, Stitcher, Google Play, or wherever you get your podcasts. So take care, and remember, when it comes to life and death and law, we are all in the same boat. Until next time, I'm Liza Hanks. Bye! Bye!